Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com. Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And I'm going to move over to Psalm 110, since that's the passage that Jesus is quoting from, and that's the focus of our sermon this morning. Psalm 110, beginning in verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your Son, Jesus Christ, is the good shepherd of your people. Grant that through the preached word we hear his voice so that we can follow where he leads. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So in this passage, Jesus is going to teach you how to contextualize the gospel properly. Now, American evangelicals are obsessed with contextualizing the gospel. And in the so-called gospel-centered movement, contextualizing the gospel basically means a truce with worldliness. For them, contextualizing the gospel is basically coming alongside secularism, baptizing it with Jesus died for your sins, and then adapting whatever emerges from that. But what we're going to see is that Jesus has a very different method for contextualizing the gospel. And so in Mark chapter 12, after the Pharisees' many attempts to trap Jesus, he turns the tables on them by asking them a question about Psalm 110. And Psalm 110 will be the focus of our sermon this morning because that's what Jesus is doing. He's taking Psalm 110 and he's having us consider it. And so Psalm 110 is about a divine king who has been seated at the right hand of God in heaven and who is presently extending his rule throughout the whole earth. This divine Messiah is not only a king, but also a priest performing priestly functions. And understand in the Old Testament you have kings and you have priests. There's a separation of church and state. But now we have this promised Messiah who's going to be the priestly king. And this priestly king is also the judge who at the end of time will execute a final judgment on the nations and the rulers of the earth. 
Now, if you're looking at Psalm 110, you'll notice it's only seven verses, and it consists really of two parts. Verses 1 through 3 emphasize that the Messiah is king, and verses 4 through 7 emphasize that the Messiah is the priest. So in Mark chapter 12, Jesus asked the scribes this question. How can you, scribes, say that Christ is the son of David when David himself calls him Lord in Psalm 110? Jesus' point is that the Messiah is best understood as David's Lord rather than his son. In other words, the Messiah is superior to David even though he comes from the line of David. Now, how is that possible? Well, it's only possible because of the incarnation. The incarnation is that great Christian doctrine where the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, comes to earth in the form of a man and takes on human flesh to be the guarantor of a better covenant, according to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22. He's going to be the God-man. He's going to be the one who saves to the uttermost those who believe in him and trust in him as their Savior and Lord. And in the incarnation, Jesus the Messiah is both the Son of David and the Son of God. And that's why he's the God-man. He's the Son of God, so he's fully God, but he's also the Son of David, born of a woman, born under the law, and so he's fully man. And as the God-man, the Messiah has particular tasks that only he can fulfill. Yes, David was king, but there are certain tasks that a mere man cannot fulfill. And so the God-man, Jesus Christ, comes to earth with particular tasks to fulfill. And to see those tasks more fully, we need to take a careful look at Psalm 110, which is the most frequently quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. So as we look here at Psalm 10, let's very quickly, just verse by verse, go through Psalm 110. And you see there in verse 1, it begins by saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at, uh, sit at my right hand. The Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand. In other words, if you update this with the fullness of New Testament theology, the Lord, God the Father, Yahweh, said to my Lord, God the Son, Adonai, sit at my right hand. Even the Jews in the Old Testament time understood that Adonai referred to the Messiah. So how long is the Messiah supposed to sit at the Father's right hand? Well, according to verse 1, until Yahweh makes his enemies a footstool. That means until Yahweh defeats his enemies. Now, what will happen while the Messiah is seated? Well, according to verse 2, Yahweh will send out the rod of Messiah's strength from Zion. 
Zion here refers to the people of God. So that means there will be a show of strength. Once the Messiah sits at the right hand of the Father, that's not when the kingdom retreats. That's when the kingdom of God begins expanding. That's when, according to verse 2, Yahweh will send out the rod of Messiah's strength through his people. There will be a show of strength once the Son is seated at the right hand. And what will be the result of this? Well, it goes on to say in verse 2 that the Messiah will rule in the midst of your enemies. So what about the Messiah's people? What are they supposed to do? Well, according to verse 3, God's people will willingly offer themselves in the day of his power. In other words, God's people will be clothed, not with bulletproof vests, but they will be clothed in the beauty of holiness, it says in verse 3. They will be clothed as an army of priests that resemble the glittering drops of the morning dew. And that language is common in the, Old in the Old Testament. Elsewhere in the Old Testament, dew is life-giving. So that means that the people of God are going to go forth in holiness with life-giving truth. And they're going to do this in the midst of God's enemies. Now, as we continue moving through Psalm 110, what has Yahweh sworn an oath to do? Well, according to verse 4, Yahweh has sworn an oath to make the Messiah a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, he's swearing an oath, so this is really strong. This is really important. And maybe that seems like a strange thing to emphasize so strongly. Wait, who is Melchizedek, and why is Melchizedek so important? Well, we learn about Melchizedek from Genesis chapter 14 and Hebrews chapter 7. Melchizedek is the king of Salem. Now, Salem is the precursor to Jerusalem. And so, not only is Melchizedek king of Salem, but he is also priest of God Most High, we're told in Genesis chapter 14, verse 18. So here we have before Israel is formed, before Jerusalem is formed, we have the priest of God Most High, Melchizedek, who is also a king. So there is a precedent for a priestly king. And remember, when Melchizedek appears to Abram in Genesis chapter 14, this is before God gives the law through Moses. And so this is before the Levitical priesthood that we associate with Aaron. See, Melchizedek, we're told in Hebrews chapter 7, Melchizedek is a priest that is greater even than the priests God assigned in the Old Testament law. Melchizedek is a king of righteousness and peace. And we're told in Hebrews chapter 7 that he is without genealogy. And so Melchizedek, we don't know who his mother is. We don't know who his father is. We don't know when his priesthood begins. We don't know when his priesthood ends. But we do know, according to Genesis chapter 14, verse 18, that Melchizedek is king of God, or excuse me, is priest of God most high. So, back to Psalm 110, verse 4. The Messiah is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. 
Well, what is the specific significance of that? Well, this means that Melchizedek is a type of Christ in three significant ways. First, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. So Melchizedek was righteous when others were not. And Jesus Christ, the Messiah, we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, is our righteousness. The second way Melchizedek is a type of Christ is Melchizedek is king of Salem, which means he is king of peace. And Jesus, the Messiah, is called the prince of peace in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And the third way Melchizedek is a type of Christ is Melchizedek is a priest, as we've just said. And Jesus also is a priest, we're told in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24. And remember, in Israel's history, kings aren't priests and priests aren't kings. But Melchizedek was the priestly king and, and Jesus comes in the way of Melchizedek. So not only does Jesus receive a very unique, specific task fit for only the God-man, but also Jesus is going to fulfill a very specific task that only a priestly king can fulfill. And that's what Psalm 10 is really about. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is going to fulfill certain tasks while sitting at the right hand of God as the God-man priestly king. And so, back to Psalm 110. The Messiah comes in the order of Melchizedek. So what will the Messiah do? Sitting at the Father's right hand as the priestly king. In other words, what are the tasks that only the God-man priestly king will accomplish? Well, picking up in verse 5. He will strike down kings in the day of his wrath. Verse 6. He will judge the heathen and many of them will be killed. Verse 7. He will drink water from the brook by the way and lift up his head. Which just means he does all these things with confidence. He does them with authority. He's at the Father's right hand after all. In other words, the priestly king is on a mission of conquest over all his enemies. If you could summarize Psalm 110, and remember, it's the most frequently Old Testament passage quoted in the New Testament, so it's rather important. If you could summarize Psalm 110 in one sentence, it would be that the God-man priestly king is on a mission of conquest over all his enemies. And again, all this begins happening according to Psalm 110 verse 1 when the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is seated at the right hand of the Father. So then the question is, when did that happen? When was Christ seated at the right hand of the Father? Well, this is the great Christian doctrine known as the ascension. See, after Jesus' resurrec resurrection, he ascended to be with the Father. This is what we're told in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. That is, he went from earth to heaven. Ephesians 1.20 says it this way, The Father worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So when was the ascension? Well, it was about 2,000 years ago. So how long has Christ been seated at the right hand of the Father? About 2,000 years. That's a long time. How long 
will he remain seated? Well, according to verse 1, Jesus will remain seated until all his enemies are under his feet. He will remain seated until all his enemies are defeated. And so now that we see the rich theology of Psalm 110, we're prepared to see two implications this has for Christians living in the year 2023. Implication number one. Because Jesus is seated until his enemies are defeated, that means that you should live with kingdom optimism. Because Jesus is seated until his enemies are defeated, you should live with kingdom optimism. Now, 2,000 years ago, what did Christ receive when he was seated at the right hand of the Father? Well, according to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, at that time he received everlasting dominion in glory, an indestructible and universal kingdom. What else did Christ receive when he was seated 2,000 years ago? Well, according to Psalm chapter 2, the nations are his inheritance and the ends of the earth are his possession. What else did Christ receive when he was seated 2,000 years ago? Well, according to Isaiah chapter 25 verse 7, he will have the authority to remove the veil that is spread over all the nations. And the result is that according to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, the nations will inquire of the Lord and find that He is the glorious resting place. And in this way, according to Psalm 22, all the earth will remember and turn to the Lord and all families will worship Him. He will make all peoples a feast of rich food and well-aged wine, according to Isaiah 25, verse 6. And it will come to pass, according to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 9, that the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And Psalm 110, verses 1 and 7 make clear that any unrepentant person will be destroyed and made a footstool. So again, what does all of this mean for us living in 2023 after Christ has been seated for 2,000 years? Well, it means that the gospel of Jesus Christ will touch the world at every point. It means that the Father, through Jesus Christ, will defeat every enemy. The Father, through Jesus Christ, will defeat communism and Darwinism. The Father, through Jesus Christ, will defeat big tech and the chai -coms. The Father, through Jesus Christ, will defeat abortion and nihilism. The Father, through Jesus Christ, will defeat corrupt government and those who rig the scales of justice. And James White, the theologian, I know many of you follow him, listen to him. James White has said that the biggest enemy of the cross in the history of the church is secularism. Well, according to Psalm 110 verse 1, God will defeat that too. And you might think, okay, I see it. I read it. I can read as well as you. Psalm 110, it's very clear. Christ is going to defeat. Christ is at the right hand of the Father. He's on a mission of conquest and has been for 2,000 years. But it doesn't seem that way. It looks dark. And it looks like darker times are coming. 
And of course, you're right, it does look dark right now. And yes, probably darker times are coming. And the darkness may last five more years, or it may last a generation. We don't know. I don't know. But we do know that God will defeat this enemy, and Christ now is still on his throne. You see, when Christ builds his kingdom, when Christ defeats every enemy, which again began 2,000 years ago when he was seated at the right hand, there will be moments of darkness. The year 1347 was a dark year when the plague hit Europe, and God helped the church through it, and the kingdom progression continued. And yet that would have been unimaginable for people living in that darkness in those times. You see, the darkness will lose because the darkness can't overcome the light. Now, I want you to look at verse 2. Psalm 110 verse 2 says that the Messiah rules in the midst of the enemies. That's not how earthly kings rule. See, earthly kings make boundaries, defend those boundaries, and then try to expand those boundaries, usually by confronting, fighting, and killing enemies. But Jesus is a king who rules in the midst of his enemies. And so this is a rule that infiltrates the hostile powers of this world, often in a way that is not discernible day by day. So just like the growth of your children isn't discernible minute by minute, or hour by hour, or even day by day. But when you look at the growth month by month or year by year, you can tell your child has grown. So too, kingdom growth isn't always visible when you look at it day by day. And so rather than looking for the conquest of God day by day or even year by year, for kingdom growth, you need to look in 500-year increments. Then you can clearly see over the past 2,000 years the kingdom expanding just like we were told in Psalm 110. And so the question for you then is, are you living as a child of victory who contributes to the expanding kingdom? Are you living as a child of victory? And understand that American evangelicalism is living under a cloud, a dense cloud of defeatism. It's a defeatism that comes from the preaching, it comes from the churches, it comes from the denominations, it comes from the seminaries, it comes from the publishing houses. Many Christians now are living under a spirit of defeatism. And they basically said, look at how evil is progressing. Look at the advance of the enemy. I guess what we'll have to do is just compromise so that we don't get destroyed altogether. And so many American evangelicals now live with a spirit of defeatism. But rather than that, Psalm 110 teaches us that we need to contextualize the gospel not based on defeatism, but based on victory. And so are you living as a child of victory who contributes to the expanding kingdom? Are you preparing your kids to crush Satan and expand the kingdom? Now, maybe you don't know where to begin. How do I teach my children to crush Satan? Well, here's an idea. When Jesus was tempted to sin, he quoted scripture back. 
Your children are going to be tempted to sin from the moment they're born. Why don't you teach them how to combat it? Teach them scripture. And don't just teach them memory verses that they can recite. No, teach them to use scripture to combat the temptation to sin. That might be a good place to start. Are you preparing your kids to crush Satan and expand the kingdom? And that leads to the second implication. And so the first implication of Psalm 110 is that because Jesus is seated until his enemies are defeated, you should have, you should live with kingdom optimism. The second implication of Psalm 110 is that because Jesus is seated until his enemies are defeated, you should participate in the conquest. You should participate in the conquest. Look with me at verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb in the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. You see, Christ the Messiah is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father. How is his rule, how is his conquest carried out? Well, some Christians have the mistaken notion that the more God does, the less humans do. But that's not the case. Because one of the ways God works is through his people who, according to verse 3, offer themselves freely. They volunteer to serve with faith, with holiness, and with truth. You see, God's rule is carried out through his covenant people who are willing and understand that this conquest that we speak about, you might get confused, it's easy to get confused because this is battle language. But defeating enemies is not about armies and battles. No, that's how the Anabaptists did things. And I can assure you, we at this church are not Anabaptists. So how specifically do we willingly participate in defeating God's enemies and expanding God's kingdom? Well, we expand Christ's conquest, not through munitions, weapons, or arsenals. We expand Christ's kingdom by suffering joyfully. We defeat God's enemies by persevering faith and faithfulness. We participate in the kingdom expansion by prayer and worship. We participate in defeating God's enemies by participating in the sacraments, by forgiving those who have wronged us, by preaching, believing, and living out the Word of God in faithfulness. See, in the apostolic church in the Roman Empire in the first century, the apostles did not hold on to the gospel in such a way as to make a truce with Rome just because it looked like Rome was in power, just because it looked like Rome could never be defeated. You see, the problem with modern evangelicalism is that they have misunderstood the Great Commission, contextualizing it and individualizing it in a way that resembles John Locke and Thomas Hobbes more than it does Jesus' Great Commission. They've contextualized the gospel to match Enlightenment philosophers rather than to match Psalm 110. 
And the result is that modern evangelicals, largely through the seminaries, largely through the accrediting agencies, have negotiated a truce with secularism, thinking, well, we can't defeat them, so we better compromise with them. And they agree that we will keep our Christian faith individual and private and continue perpetuating the idolatry of religious pluralism. And they call this contextualizing the gospel. But the two implications of Psalm 110 overturn that common method in American evangelicalism. And so you should have kingdom optimism and you should participate in the conquest. And so in conclusion, I call on you to contextualize the Great Commission, contextualize the gospel, not based on Locke and Rousseau, but based on Psalm 110. Then you will see that resistance to secularism and all its false and idolatrous claims is the way to simultaneously obey the Great Commission and live in the day of the Messiah's power that is talked about in Psalm 110, verse 3. You know, in the book of Acts, Paul subverts the world's idolatrous system. He subverts it. He doesn't make an armistice with it. See, Paul was viewed as a threat to that godless society. Are you viewed as a threat to our godless society? Are the churches today viewed as a threat to our godless society? When Paul started churches across Asia Minor, he didn't try to just carve out a niche in Rome where he could kind of get along with wickedness. No, what did he do? He went around and planted churches. He went around and he created local covenant communities with a distinctive history and practices. Think the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Prayer, preaching, joyful singing, joyful living, the fruit of the Spirit. He was creating the church of Jesus Christ. And what is the church? Well, it's a people that through faith in Jesus Christ are reconciled to God. The guilt of the punishment for sins is paid in full. Sins are forgiven. They are declared right with God. And they are transformed to walk in the newness of life. The church is a people restored to its created purpose and set on a trajectory of spreading gospel renewal to the ends of the earth. The kingdom has come, and Jesus Christ is creating a new society in which our king reigns in heaven until that day when all his enemies are a footstool. Then Jesus Christ will come again and see to the completion of the new heavens and the new earth. And so, Trinity Reformed Church, you should be participating in kingdom conquest. Let's close by praying together. Heavenly Father, the heavens are yours and all the host of them. The earth is yours in its fullness, the world and all that live here. In your hand are the deep places of the earth and the strength of the hills is yours. The sea is yours, for you made it. The dry land is yours, for you made it. All the forest animals are yours and the cattle on a thousand hills. You are the true and great God and King. Your dominion is everlasting in your kingdom from generation to generation. All power is yours in heaven and earth and we rejoice in the glory and power of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.
Thanks for listening. To find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.